Amen. I was just reminded this morning of another time about nine, maybe eight years ago when I was preaching a sermon on a similar topic about Jesus Christ being a light to all the nations and little did I know someone from another country walked in the back door while I was preaching from a Muslim background and heard the sermon for the first time, heard about Jesus in a real meaningful way and later they connected with someone else in our congregation and actually were converted and were born again into Jesus. That was not what I was intending. I was thinking this sermon will encourage people to go to the nations, and that day the nations came to us. So praise God, you never know what he's going to do when his word is preached. Back in 2016, about one month after President Trump was elected, about two months before Tom Brady was the Super Bowl MVP, a lady named Dr. Helen Rosevere, age 91, passed away. Now, Dr. Helen had been for over 20 years in the 50s and 60s a missionary to Africa in Zaire. And among other things, with her medical mission, she worked with children with leprosy and she helped to build clinics there and train nurses to do evangelism. Had a lot of fruit in her ministry, but she also had a mountain of pain. It was in 1964 when, uh, due to a civil war, many of the missionaries left the area she was at, but she did not leave. And eventually the soldiers came and took Dr. Helen along with nine other Protestant missionaries and imprisoned them. While in prison, she was bound and beaten and one night abused in an unspeakable way. Thankfully, she later recovered upon her release. And when she did, she said these words. She said, In the midst of this, God did not take away pain or cruelty or humiliation. No, it was all there, but now it was altogether different. It was with Him. It was for Him. My suffering was in Him. God was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way the edge of the fellowship of Christ's suffering. So there she is relating her suffering and she can connect it to Christ's suffering. Well, after that ordeal, many people wondered, many of her colleagues and friends wondered if Dr. Helen would ever recover. But amazingly, she did. And a short year and a half later, she went back to the mission field and served for several more years as a fruitful missionary to the people who actually had brutalized her. When I heard that, my question was, how can we here at TCC have that spirit, that unction to keep going with all the global pain that we're seeing now with COVID-19 and other situations, and also our own personal pain, how can we keep the gospel moving forward. Well, as I read some more about Dr. Helen's life, I found several factors, of course, that influenced her going. But then I found one line, one quote, that stopped me short, and I wanted to read it to you. She was speaking again about her hard time and trial, and she said, God understood not only my desperate misery, but also my awakened desires and mixed up horror and emotional trauma. God understood this. I knew that Philippians 4.19 was true. That's where God says, my God will supply every need of yours according to what? According to his riches in glory in Jesus Christ. He said that was true on all levels not just on a hyper-spiritual level where I tried to relegate it. And here's why this line stopped me short. You see here, her willingness to push the gospel forward is bound up in her understanding of the glory of Jesus Christ. She's not writing in this line about her own grit, although I'm sure it dripped from that lady like honey from the comb. 
She's not writing about her own subjective calling, although elsewhere she did speak of that. She's not writing about her education, although she was Cambridge trained. In this line, she is talking about moving the good news of Jesus as a missionary forward to all nations based on the foundation and understanding and seeing of God's glory in Jesus. That is what will propel us forward. That's the game changer here. And as I think about us as a church, what are we doing to impact the globe? Not just Raleigh, but the entire globe. Currently, we have three of our families on the field working. We have two more that are ready to go. When everything settles down, hopefully they will go as well. And in the past 15 years of doing ministry here, TCC has never not had a partner on the field. So God has been very faithful to us in the past, in the present, and I'm looking forward to the future asking the question, how can we keep this going? Dr. Helen has given the answer. She says it's bound up in the very glory of Jesus himself. So today, I want to see this by looking at the Bible together. We're going to look at a passage in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 49. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Isaiah. Big prophet book about in the middle of your Bible. Just open it up in the middle and you'll almost hit Isaiah. Chapter 49. We just finished an entire series on the book of 1 Peter. We are not studying a series on Isaiah now. I'm just starting here for today. Looking at Isaiah chapter 49, the first six verses. And as we remind ourselves of the mission of the church today, and as we zero in here, I just want to set the stage before we begin reading. If you know anything about Isaiah, as we peek in here, you'll know that he's addressing a kingdom in shambles. The Jewish people had been dominated by the mighty world conquerors, the empire of Babylon. They had been pulled out of their homeland and thrust back into a foreign land of Babylon. A part of Isaiah's message is that even though they were decimated, God was not finished. The Lord is not finished. He promised to rescue his people in Isaiah through a character named the Servant. Isaiah introduces this character named the servant, and he is going to be the rescuer. Now, from our vantage point, this side of the cross, we know that servant is Jesus Christ. But Isaiah will call him not only the servant, but Isaiah will also call him Israel. Why? Because Jesus Christ succeeded everywhere that the nation of Israel failed. He's the true, the one Israel And Isaiah will refer to him as such in this passage. Now, for our purposes today, what I want you to do is just lean in closer to the text and do some eavesdropping because there's some conversations going on here. The first one is between Jesus, the Messiah, and all of the world. Picture every tribe and every nation, every people group, and the Messiah is speaking to them. And then he will turn and speak to someone else. Let's look together here. Verse 1, Isaiah 49. The servant is speaking and he says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. Imagine here the unstoppable servant standing up on a boulder and addressing the entire world with his word. Twice he commands their attention. And he's still commanding the attention of the nation even today. Continuing in verse 1, he says, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. This is the servant of God speaking. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. In verse 3 now, he turns to speak to the Lord. He turns away from proclaiming to the nations 
And the servant, the Messiah, turns to the Lord as we get one of those places in Scripture where you see an intimate triune God talking to himself in a father-son type of conversation. Verse 3. And he, the Lord, said to me, the Messiah, you're my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I, the servant, said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Now, can't you hear the pain in the servant's own personal testimony there? He feels that this his saving work is in vain. Why? Why does the Messiah say, I feel like my saving work is in vain? Well, the Apostle Paul will explain this. In Acts 13, Paul will quote this very chapter. And before he does, he rebukes the Jewish people. He says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to the Jewish people. You remember that Jesus was born a Jew and the gospel spread first to the Jewish people. But Paul says, since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. It is this rejection of Jesus as David's king, this thrusting aside by the Jews, that breaks the servant's heart. That's why he will say here, I feel like I labored in vain because his own people rejected him. And yet, keep your eye on the servant in this passage. He doesn't turn from God when he feels rejected. Instead, he leans into him. Look in verse 4, he says, Yet surely my right hand is with the Lord. My recompense is with my God. He's not abandoned as he calls out to the nations, even though he's rejected by the Jews. The Messiah has not been abandoned by the Lord himself. For I, the servant, am honored in the eyes of the Lord. And my God has become my strength. This leads us to verse 6, which is going to be the foundation of what we talk about today. Verse 6 will provide and lay down the tracks of TCC's locomotive motion moving forward to the nations. The Lord responds to the servant in verse 6. So, so far the first five verses, the Messiah is speaking. Now here in verse 6, the Lord, the God of the universe, will respond. And listen to what he says. He says, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Here's what happened. Even though... Jesus was initially rejected. At some point, faithful Jews will be rescued. And when God looks to the Messiah, He says, you rescuing the tribes of Jacob and Israel? That's too light of a thing. That's too light. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of of the earth. It's too light a thing that you only save one people group. That's not enough. The scope of salvation for Jesus Christ is going to be for the entire planet. Now we'd have to just marvel as we pause for a moment to look at these words because if you've ever read your Bible in the Old Testament, if there's any group who ever existed who deserved not to be saved, it is the people we hear about in the Old Testament. God came to him with mercy and love and patience, and they reject him time and time and time again. He pledged himself in an intimate way to his people, and they turned their nose up at him. He gave them a land. They gave him idolatry. He gave them a temple. They filled it with Baal's hookers. There's no way you can look at the salvation offered to the people of God in the Old Testament and see Him raise them out of a pit and not say, who that's heavy. And yet, God looks to the Messiah and says, it's too light a thing just to save them. 
That's not enough. You know, it's election time once again, and I want you to imagine with me that there was a third-party candidate, very popular, that was announced tomorrow, and he actually had a chance to win. That would excite some of you, I know. And imagine again, this third-party candidate stood up and said, I have the answer to all of America's ills. I know how we can defeat COVID, social justice, we can fix immigration, gun control, religious liberty, poverty, all the economy, foreign policy. I can fix it all. If somebody came and said that, you wouldn't believe them, right? But just imagine further, if this guy were elected and six months into his presidency, he has fixed America. He solved all of these problems. The economy is great. Foreign policy is flourishing. COVID is gone. Social justice issues have gone away. They've been solved. If someone were to do that, there's no way you would look to them and say, hey, that's a pretty light thing you did there. No, you would say, ah, it's amazing. The salvation of the Jewish people was an even bigger thing eternally than fixing America would be. And yet God looks to the Messiah and says, ah, you saving the Jewish people, that's a light thing. It's, it's too light. The question I want to ask today is, why does he say that? Why does God look at the amazing example of salvation we have in the Bible of God saving the Jews? Why does he look at the Messiah, this servant, and say, that's, that's too light? Well, there's a couple of reasons, and they're both bound up with the glory of Jesus Christ, and they both will serve as anchors for our global mission as we desire to take the gospel, not just in Raleigh, but all over the planet. Let me share with you two reasons why God can say, it's too light a thing. For Jesus Christ to only serve and save the Jews. He must go. Here's the first one. The supreme dignity of Christ's glory demands that the gospel goes glory. Global. The, the supreme dignity of Christ's glory demands that the gospel must go global. And when we speak of dignity... We're aiming at quality. Dignity means the quality of being worthy of honor. Now hear me on this point if you don't hear anything else today. It is the worth of Jesus, the supreme worth of Jesus that demands TCC reach globally. It is the supreme worth of Jesus that demands that we reach globally. He must be treasured and enjoyed by all. Here's what we mean. I recently went car shopping. I don't know if you like to go car shopping. I really don't, but I did it. And I went to the dealer. And the way this dealership was set up was you walk in the door and there's a foyer. And of course, there's car lots on both sides and in the back. But just past the foyer, there's this huge showroom. So if you love cars, what they want you to do is while you're waiting for a salesman, they want you to just rummage through and see all the nice new cars. So as I was walking through there, my eyes were drawn to what they had placed front and center in the showroom after a line of three or four Porsches. There was a Ferrari, all right, F430 series, Black leather seats, spoiler on the back, tight wheels, the dancing pony on the side, and a sticker of $94,000, and it was amazing. It was a beautiful car, and as I stood there, I watched people walk into the showroom, especially dudes. They would walk into the showroom, they'd look around, and they'd be like, they would all wonder, even if a guy's buying a minivan, he wanders over to the Ferrari, and he checks it out with his buddy. Now... The car I went home with was a Ford, and it was parked out in the back lot. 
I didn't come home with the Ferrari. I came home from the, with the Ford parked way out there. Here's the thing. Sitting in the back lot would be too light a thing for the Ferrari. All right? There's a reason they didn't park that out back in the shadows. It was so great. It was meant to be seen by all because of the quality of the vehicle. And that's the point of Jesus. His glory shines so greatly, all ears must hear of him, all eyes must see. His dignity, majesty, regality demand that all must hear his name. He's meant to be placed where everybody can see him. And you can see hints of his glory here in this passage. If you look at verse 1, the servant, Jesus Christ, says, He is called by the Lord in his mother's womb. Even before birth, he was destined for this great salvation. That's glorious. Verse 2, his mouth is described as a sharp sword. During this time, the way that God immediately delivered his people is he he raised up a king named Cyrus. And Cyrus took over the people that took over God's people. Right? So when he took over, Cyrus, by force, ran out the Babylonians and he let, eventually, the Jews go free. Cyrus came in with a real sword. The servant, the Messiah, speaks words that are like a sword. He merely has to speak. And he has revealing, he has saving words that illuminate the heart's of people So much so that when John the Apostle is writing about Jesus, he calls him the Word become flesh because he is the supreme revelation of the glory of God. Verse 2, we also hear that the servant himself twice is seen as sheltered near Yahweh himself, near the Lord. In the Old Testament, One thing about God is you did not come near Him. He is holy. You didn't even touch His ark or you would die. And yet the servant is mentioned twice as being intimately near the Lord. He's in the shadow of God's hand and he's in God's quiver. Who else is so spectacular that they could say this but the servant of God, the Messiah? Then most clearly in verse 3. God turns to his son and he says, you are my servant in whom I am glorified. My glory will gush forth through you. In Jesus, the blinds are pulled back and you can discover what's best about God. Of course, these things are revealed most clearly in the gospel. When Jesus came, was born, lived a perfect life, died for the sins of his people, and then rose again, it is there that you see most clearly the greatness of God. For instance, you can see his mercy in love in the gospel. Paul speaks about this in Ephesians 2.4, where he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. See the mercy and the love? You see God's glorious wisdom and righteousness in the gospel? 1 Corinthians 1.30 You're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. You see all of that in the work of Jesus. You see... His justice best at the cross. Romans 3, 25 and 26, Paul writes, Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you want to see the best of God, you have to look to Jesus to see his glory. So when you think about missions, What you should be thinking about and remembering is this. Until the whole world learns of the glory of Jesus, God's honor 
will always be called into question. It's too light a thing for the gospel to stay local. It must go global. Now I can think of some concrete examples of how the glory of Christ overcomes the lesser glories of competing religions. Not too long ago, we were on a short-term trip. From TCC, we went to Kathmandu, Nepal. Kathmandu sounds funny. It's actually a big city there in Nepal. And we went there, and we were doing some gospel work, and they have a uh, very famous stupa there. Not stupid, but stupa is a burial place for the remains, the cremated remains of the bones of former Buddhas. So they put them in this giant building that looks like a temple, and people come from miles around. And it's amazing to see because minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, you will see people walk around the outside of this building, and they will say their mantras. Mantras are supposed to earn them merit. Merit in the Buddhist philosophy is getting rid of the bad stuff and getting good in place of your bad. And so you'll see them walk around saying the same thing over and over and over again. On the stupa, they have these vertical poles with round discs. And if you don't want to say the mantra, you can walk and you can spin the poles. You may have seen them in a movie. Spin the poles. That earns your atonement. If you want to go all out, you fall on the ground. I'm standing there, and there are women and men falling on the ground. And they get back up, they walk two steps, and they fall on the ground again. They say the mantra, get back up, walk two steps, fall on the ground again. And I'm asking a friend, what's going on here? We don't do this where I live. We don't see this much. What's going on? And he tells to me, these people are all trying to earn merit to undo the bad they know that they have done. That leads to a greater enlightenment. And I say Jesus is better than that. We have a higher quality salvation. He earned all that needed to be earned with his death on the cross. He paid the supreme penalty for the sins of the whole world, all who would trust in him one time and one time only. Because it's a higher quality. Don't have to reapply it. Jesus is better. Here's another example. This story comes from missions writer Eva Carmichael just two months ago. She writes of a lady named Anim. Anim lives in Central Asia among an unreached people group. And when Anim was born, she grew up and about 11 or 12 years old, she was told that she had the same gift as her mother and her grandmother, and that was the gift of fortune-telling. And Anim said, indeed, since she was young, she could speak with spirits. And the spirits would tell her the fortunes of others. Well, due to some uh, different circumstances, Anim decided not to pursue the path of fortune-telling. Instead, she went on to get an education in law. While doing that, she met a man and was married in a traditional uh, Muslim way for that region. And he told her, I don't want you working. He forbade her from working. It's what she entered in with a traditional lifestyle she had several kids, and on the birth, at the birth of her fourth child, she was bedridden because she had heavy complications. Now she found herself in a situation of poverty because her husband never let her work, and now she couldn't do anything, so the kids were on the verge of starvation. She didn't have any medicine, so missionaries run upon Anim. They give her what she needs, circle back with her. A couple months later, she's feeling better. And she says to them, you know, I, I believe there's a God. I always try to work towards pleasing Him. I do lots of things to impress Him because I want Him to love me. And so the missionaries gave her a Bible in her own language, circled back a couple months later. Missionary woman's talking to her. And she says, I want to know this God of the Bible because, and this is what I want you to hear. She said, I've never found a way or a person who would love me without earning it. I want to know what it is to feel love unconditional. 
And the missionary said, you found it in Jesus. Because only in the glory of Christ is there a love that overflows so much, it cancels out any silly attempt at earning merit before God. Wouldn't work anyway. Only in Jesus does he do the work for us. Because his salvation is of the highest quality. She was born again. She was converted. She said, I feel like a new person. I feel alive. She turned to the missionary and she said, you're my sister now. Amen to the higher quality of the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Oh, may the world see how Jesus overshadows all of the competition. So here at TCC, we'll work, we'll pray, we'll go, we'll send all so that the world knows the supreme dignity of Christ's glory. In fact, His glory demands that the gospel go global. That's the first reason. In Isaiah 49, when the Lord is speaking to the servant, He can say to the servant, saving the Jews is just too light a thing for you. We need something bigger. It's because the dignity of the glory of Christ demands that the entire planet see his glory. And here's the second reason. The Lord can turn to the servant after saving the Jews and say, that's too light a thing. Too light a thing. He can say that. Secondly, because the immense capacity of Christ's glory demands that the gospel goes global. The immense capacity of the glory of Christ demands that it goes global so before we were talking on the issue of quality, right? There's no God of the quality of Jesus Christ. Now we're going to speak of capacity. When we talk about capacity, we're talking about an amount. We're talking in quantities now. When we say a power plant can generate a certain amount or capacity of electricity, we understand what we mean by that. Well, look at Isaiah 49.6 again. The Lord speaking to the servant, he says this, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Reach is a long enough word. Apparently, the vast amount of God's saving glory in Christ is too much to be held back. It's such capacity that it will always move forward. You know what a supernova nova is? A supernova? In high school, my friend drove an old Chevy Nova. That's not what I'm talking about. But a star can go into a supernova phase. Imagine this. Imagine the entire mass of the earth. Now imagine a star a million times that. Ooh, my mind just lost it. Can't do it. But these giant stars exist, and when they age, they will eventually die, they will implode, and then they will explode, and that's called a supernova. That explosion of brightness of a supernova is said to outshine entire galaxies for months. Now, while we're imaginating, imagine taking off your COVID-19 mask designed to catch droplets from your mouth and imagine going near the star just before it explodes and holding that mask up. I think we can all agree that a COVID-19 mask is too light a thing to stop the capacity of the light coming from a supernova. The same is true with the glory of Jesus Christ. It's like trying to hang heavy oak shelves with a thumbtack. Thumbtack is too light a thing. It's insufficient for the capacity of the load. That's why God can say to His servant that rescuing only, only the Hebrews is just not enough. It's too light a thing because the amount of glory displayed by Jesus Christ in the gospel is too much to rest only on one people group. It must go global. By nature, it's meant to gush forth. The sheer amount of splendor is too much. 
It'll never stop. It'll never run out. The capacity is unlimited. Now, I want you to turn one other place in your Bibles. Make sure you're still awake. Turn to 2 Corinthians. Now we'll go into the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul gives probably the clearest explanation of the foundation of missions. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Remember, Paul was a missionary. He's not just an apostle, not just a scripture writer. He's a missionary who's going and going and going in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 4. He explains all of this. I'm going to read it and explain it as we go. Look in verse 4. Paul says, Now the God of this world, now when you see G, little g, God of this world, he's talking about Satan. The ancient nasty snake. He said, now the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So in Kathmandu, where I was at the stupa, in Batman, where we used to work, here in Raleigh, we all have the same problem. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Why has he blinded them? says it next. Keep reading. To keep them from seeing what? From seeing the light. Oh, Isaiah 49. God promised the servant will be a light to the nations. Now what's Satan up to? I'm going to try to blind everybody so they can't see the light. What is the light? Paul explains further. Keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. That means good news. Good news of what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The very glory of Christ that we are sending people out to share is the very target of Satan's arrows. He is trying to blind all unbelievers from seeing the glory of of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. See, Jesus, you see the image of God? You become enraptured by this vision. You give your heart to Him. You are saved forevermore. Satan doesn't want any of that. But look, verse 5. Watch this, because this is how the gospel breaks through. This is how missions work. Verse 5. Paul says, For we proclaim... What we proclaim is not ourselves. Thank goodness for that, right? Man, one barrier of my own evangelism is I I tell somebody the good news of Jesus, and I've I've had people tell me before, like, well, you're not perfect. I know you. And so I'm scared that they're going to think I'm saying that I'm perfect because I'm sharing the gospel. But we don't proclaim ourselves, okay? We proclaim ourselves. Jesus Christ as Lord. Now get this next part. It's complicated, but you can see it. Talking about missions, we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, who was the servant in Isaiah 49? The servant was the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, right? Now, Paul takes that same servant language and he applies it to the church in their own proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. We continue the very mission of the Messiah as servants as we go and as we speak. Verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, going all the way back to creation, then that light imagery bounces off Isaiah the prophet. It lands here in 2 Corinthians. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown where? Has shown in our hearts, for what purpose? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Understand what he just said happened. God has taken his light, 
revealed it in Jesus, and then he placed it in us so that we can proclaim it to another person. It's not running out. There's enough of it, enough capacity that he can place light here, and I can share it, and there's no diminished returns. The capacity of the glory of Jesus is unlimited. The servants become the servants. On and on it goes because it will never run out. It's not like the potato chips in my house. Man, those Tostitos, the lime ones, if we pass that around the Williams table, we have eight people, when it gets to me, nothing left because it's limited. That's not what he's talking about here. Capacity of Jesus' glory is unlimited. It will never run out. Partake and pass it on. Partake and pass it on. Partake and pass it on. Still the same. That's why a little bit later, look at verse 17. If you're still in 2 Corinthians 2, look at verse 17. Paul will speak to situations like Dr. Helen at the start of the service where missionaries suffer, he'll say, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That weight language is a measurement answering the question of how heavy something is. It's a weight. The weight of Christ's glory is beyond all comparison. In verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, that's the things of this world, but to the things that are unseen, the things that are seen are transient. That stupa containing the bones of a dead Buddha that have been burned, that stupa is transient. But, Paul says, the things that are unseen are eternal. The blessings of God are eternal. Now, you ask the question. They're eternal in the sense that they will last forever. How can blessings of God last forever? Well, they flow from the glory of Christ, which has unlimited capacity, and it will fuel heaven forever. Don't worry, heaven's not going to run out. Because the capacity of the glory of Jesus will never run out. Mark 4, Jesus asked his disciples a simple question. You might remember it. He's talking to his disciples and he said, Hey, is a lamp brought in the room to be put under a basket or to be put under a bed? And Jesus said, A lamp should be up on a stand, right? I got a lot of lamps in my house and not one of them is under the bed. They're on tables or sitting on the floor because they're purpose is to light up the whole room. Matthew 13, 31, Jesus describes his kingdom in a different way. He talks about having a little mustard seed, which is the smallest possible seed in that part of the world. How if you plant it, it starts out small, but it actually outgrows every other plant in the garden and becomes a huge tree so that the birds of the air can land in it. He's speaking in metaphors. The glory of Christ's saving work is so vast that all of the birds of the nations can rest in it. Unlimited capacity. One of my favorite small stories in Matthew 9 is when Jesus comes and he meets two blind guys. And because of his compassion, he heals them. The blind have sight. That's what light does, right? And that's what Jesus did. And he tells the guys, it's not quite time for me to reveal my glory to everybody. So let's keep this on the down low. Let's just keep this quiet. And they're like, okay. And then they run home and they open their mouths. And the Bible said the gospel spread throughout the district. Two people. Why? Unlimited capacity of the glory of Christ. It goes and it goes and it goes. And so what we're doing practically when we do missions 
is we are comparing the glory of Christ, unlimited capacity, to much lesser idols, much lesser worldviews, much lesser gods. I think I've shared before on one trip, I went on a short-term trip to Turkey. I was going there to do some mission work, and I sat down, and there was a college-age girl from Turkey, Muslim girl, traveling back from America, and she was kind enough to talk. You could talk on planes before COVID, and we were talking about the things of God, and she kept telling me, she said, "I, I get what you're saying about Jesus, but Jesus was so long ago, I don't think his teachings and his salvation will hold up. Muhammad came after him, you see. He's sooner, so his teachings are of greater value because Jesus' will not hold up. And she missed it. Tried to tell her his capacity, sister, is full, big enough. You can trust in that, but she missed it. It wasn't her time But just like Christ's dignity, until we go, his capacity will continue to be called into question. The gospel answers the question, does God have enough salvation for me? Did you know that right now as we speak, there are nearly 80 million forcibly displaced people in the world today? 80 million. Social commentators in America are fearing a civil war. It's already happening across the globe to the tune of 80 million people being forcibly displaced. Experts guesstimate that 99% of those 80 million will never land in a place to call home. They will never be permanently settled. 500,000 of these Refugees have landed in uh, South Africa where our missionaries are working, partners. People are coming from Somalia, Zimbabwe, Congo, Rwanda, South Sudan. And what we're told is that people come and they're not allowed to work because they're not citizens, they're refugees, which means they usually get one meal a day. There's also an incredible level of xenophobia there hating people from another country. So the refugees come in and they tell their kids, when you go out on the street, when you go to school, don't speak. Because if someone hears your dialect, your accent, there will be persecution. Now stop for a minute and ask the question, through what lens do you feel these 80 million displaced people will view salvation? They're going to view salvation through the lens of provision, right? As our missionaries talk there, they're running into questions of, does God have enough for me? Because no one else has ever. Is God's salvation enough for me? And to that, only Christianity can answer, yes. The glory of Jesus Christ is big enough It will not run out. You can take hope and take faith that the salvation offered in Isaiah thousands of years ago is still real, still happening, is still saving, and there's enough for you in Jesus for this world and the next. His salvation has unlimited capacity. God is big enough in Jesus. So we see that the immense capacity of Christ's glory demands the gospel goes global. Started our time today talking about a woman named Dr. Helen Rosevere. She died at 91. This weekend, my wife is traveling out of state for a sober reason. Uh, Fifteen years ago, we sent out a family to do missions to a place that's so unsafe that we can't even share the name of that family now. I'll call them the Smith family. For 15 years, they've been laboring. And when they went to their training, they met another family from another church. I'll call the Polk family. And for the past 15 years, the Smiths and the Polks have shared Jesus to unreached people, but they've also shared their lives. They share meals, church. The kids are best friends. 
Recently, because of the pandemic, the Polk family had to come home to America and the Smith family is stuck overseas. And just last Wednesday, Bill, the husband and father, went out to do his normal workout and he never came home. Later, they found him unresponsive, laying below a pull-up bar, dead at age 41. We mourn the loss of Bill, but we also at the same time realize that there are ripple effects from every gospel pebble he dropped overseas and it will ripple not just now but forevermore into eternity. And when I hear this story and I think about the tragic loss of this international worker, I have the question, how can we replace that void? What will propel our church to reaching nation after nation after people group after refugee with the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And I say it is only with a fresh vision of the dignity of Christ's glory and the capacity of his glory. And only that, as we seek to strive to meet Christ, to treasure him, only keeping Jesus' glory in front of us will allow us to go and sustain our mission to the end of the world. Let's pray together. God, we pray now that you come to us. Father, we walked into this room. We sat down in the black seats awkwardly far from our friends. And we have a lot of things that we want. But I'm not praying for that right now, Father. I'm praying that you would increase our vision of the glory of Jesus to such an extent that it will overflow to the entire planet. God, use this church to make your name known through Jesus Christ. I pray this simple request in his name. Amen.